This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Well, this sucks. Hey everybody, I'd like to welcome you all to another episode of the Focus Hunting Podcast. The Focus Hunting Podcast is part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. For more information on Waypoint, make sure you head on over to waypointtv.com. Okay, for this episode I got quite a unique character on uh, on the show, um, Charles Beatty. Now if, uh, if you guys aren't familiar with Charles, he also goes by the handle Prince of Poachers. Um, Charles, he had quite the run as uh, an outlaw um, and t- illegally took over 116 trophy class whitetail deer um, from private land. So, um, yeah, it's quite the story, um, you know, and in no way, shape or form am I condoning or promoting being an outlaw or poaching or doing anything like anything illegal, anything like that. I just came across the story and uh and I just had to share it with you guys. So I uh, hope you guys like this. And, you know, it might offend some people. For those that does, sorry. But, uh, you know, it's just uh, it's one of those things that happened. It is what it is. And uh, um, Charlie, he paid his uh, his debt to society. So, um, and, you know, now he's got a book uh, telling about it. So, um, anyway, I hope you guys like this this episode. Uh, before we get going, we actually, we got a giveaway here. Um, Charlie hooked us up with a couple books. So I'm going to throw in some focus swag. So, just uh, go over to my Instagram page, and you guys, you're going to see the details of that giveaway. Um, so, yeah, just make sure you head on over to Focus underscore Hunting, and uh, you'll see that uh, you'll see that giveaway. Um, yeah, and as always, uh, hunting season, you know, uh, it's starting to get close to wrapping up here for deer season up here in uh, British Columbia and other parts of, of Canada and the U.S. So, uh, you know, let me know how you guys' hunting's going. You know, DM me or email me. Uh, I'd love to hear about that. And i got a bunch of extra swag from my supplier I'd love to uh, ship out to you guys. So just let me know how it's going. 
And as always, like and subscribe to the show. Five-star ratings help. Uh, anyway, I hope you guys like uh, this episode. So anyway, thanks for uh, for jumping on the podcast, man. I know it's not easy for you to uh, to get these things going. you gotta you got to go a bit to get uh, cell phone service, so I appreciate that. It should be all right today, though. I think we're going to be okay. So where are we hitting you up from today? Well, I'm right here just northwest of Glen Rose, Texas, you know, southwest of Fort Worth, some 50 miles. What's the weather like down in Texas? Perfect today. Just beautiful. Is it? Yeah, it's, uh... Yeah. We're getting dumped with a blanket of snow today, so... Really? Good day to be a po- in a, doing a podcast, yeah. Yeah, so for those who, uh... Who don't recognize the voice? I'm uh, I'm talking to Charles Beatty, aka the uh, Prince of Poachers. Um, you know, some folks listen to this; they might think that we're going to be, you know, um, promoting poaching and 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 outlaws. Uh, you know, and everyone seems to be really sensitive these days. So, um, you know, if this if this offends anyone, then then just turn it off, right, Charles? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You go. Just a, you go by Chuck or Charles. Yeah, Charlie. Charlie? Yeah. Everybody's got a past, and that was mine, you know. I've been a poacher for over 23 years now. Retired poacher. Yeah, ex, ex-outlaw, deer hunter. <laughs> yeah, so where, where did you get the handle, Prince of Poachers? Oh, there's a little story behind that. I had a guy, a journalist, working with me on the idea of writing a book about it one day, and, you know, he asked me, did I have any nicknames of any sort? And, then, you know, anybody call me anything different than my name? And I said, well, I had a title as King of the Kennedy Ranch for a good while. But I said, you know, one day I was sitting up on a sand dune and I was contemplating that. And I said, uh, you had to be the one that killed the biggest deer ever come out of that county to be the king. I said, there's got to be a little outlaw royalty here somewhere. And I said, what's the next in the chain of command? So I said, well, I guess that has to be the prince. And this journalist come out of his shoes. He goes, that's it. That will be the name of the book, Prince of Poachers. Well, you know, I made up my mind finally when I got around to doing the book that that should be the name, but for more than one reason. You know, part two is going to explain the other half. It's sort of a two-sided, you know, meaning and impl- implication to that title. So, you know, everyone will have something to keep them curious about till part two's up but take an interest in my story and get the book how long were you sitting on the idea of writing a book before you actually got uh, pen to paper only about three or four years uh three i believe what happened was i wrote it the part one and then i became deathly ill with skin cancer and like to die didn't think none of it would ever happen about nine years in i was almost dead got the right doctor now I'm nine years plus in recovery, and I'm clearly going to get well. I'm still very damaged. I, you know, I'm damaged goods. I'm beat up. I, I'm weak. I'm, you know, most women could probably beat me arm wrestling now, but, you know, I was real strong when it hit me. It just ate me. But I'll rehab soon and see how much I've got left to build back. But I'm almost over all the healing processes, and, you know, the damage it did to my skin and all, and it's come up from down deep too. So I, I'm about well. And, you know, I sat on the part one for 15 years, written and typed, and couldn't come forward with it. Then all of a sudden, my dad, about four years ago, before he passed away, he wanted to help me get it launched, and he got the money to kick it off. And uh, I lost him last February to COVID, but without him, it would have never happened. He kept me 
positive thinking throughout the battle for the for my life with the skin cancer. I wouldn't have made it through it without his support. And, you know, when it boiled down to it, you know, I, I had to come off a deathbed sort of situation and write the final chapter. You know, I went ahead and stuck the conclusion on part one so people have some kind of idea how the story ended to a degree, but there's much more coming in part two. There's, you know, nine more years and 75 more big deer. And, you know, part one only covered the first seven years and uh, 41 outlaw bucks and, you know, many hunts with friends and people you wouldn't think would ever go and risk it. In fact, what got me back to it after a rough divorce when I had quit for six years, a police officer that was a taxidermy customer I trusted him enough to didn't think it was a setup, you know, or nothing. But he got me to take him just because he'd never killed a big deer. And I didn't have anything to lose at that point. I went through a world record divorce. And so I didn't have any reason to stay out of jail if it come to that. So we went. And then the next week, I took his best friend, partner, another cop. The two police officers are the ones that got me kicked off back into it. And then it just went hog wild again. And, you know. I had a vendetta against the state of Texas. They got involved in my divorce and believed lies on me. You know, gave custody of my son to my ex-wife, and she ran away to you know Missouri with a banker. You know, I didn't see my son again for 19 years. So during that time, I got angry, and I was more. The longer he'd been out of my life, the matter I got. I'm more, you know, more deer I left laying dead. And I even got vengeant, vindictive, and and started dragging carcasses out in roads to torment the game wardens and you know the ranch. I I was just lashing back at the injustice that had been done to me in the state here. And, you know, I still got a bone to pick coming in part two. I get my vindication. I get to tell my side of the story and how I was victimized, you know, criminal injustice against me. And the state was involved in it. They had no right to give her custody of my son. But that's what drove me back to it. And then my arrest and capture came in 1998. At the end of a long season, you know, I was set up. I didn't think that was going to happen, but this old commercial fisherman, drug addict, he was up on parole violations, going to go back to prison, and he set me up. He talked me into letting him take me across the Baffin Bay and drop me off on the shore there, the north shore of the Kennedy Ranch. I'd been tired from a long season. I thought, well, it'd be nice to take about an 18-mile ride in there to the depths this time, and then bail and hunt my way casually all the way back out of the county i was just going to walk out of the county to back to my truck well they got on my trail they picked up my tracks the third morning and then they tracked me 17 miles before they caught up with me but you know there's a lot to that part of the story but you know that's how it ended the next year here in texas outlaw hunting you know without consent of landowner became a felony it was still a class A misdemeanor when I was caught, so I was charged and given probation, suspension of 18 months on hunting and fishing both. Well, the next year while I was on probation, it became a felony. I would have quit at that point anyway. It was never worth going to prison for me. Yeah, I'd already done so much of it. I was tired of it anyway, and I was 41 when I was caught. I'm 65 now. I certainly have no intentions of risking anything that would carry a prison sentence, you know, 
If I was, it'd be an armored car full of cash, three or four million cash, before I'd go after another big deer, you know. Yeah, something a little more advantageous, I guess. Yeah, if you're going to risk prison, you know, go all the way. Go big time or go home. I mean, I wouldn't risk 10 years in the pen over a deer. You do the same time for robbing an armored car. So, you know, do the math. So you said you were uh, you're sitting on you were sitting on the book for a while and you couldn't release it. Uh, was that... Just financial reasons, or you were just uh, afraid of people would think about it? Mostly, I was just deathly ill. Yeah, I just couldn't complete right. I was intending to write the whole thing in one piece. So at that point, I looked at it like, I can't write the second half. I, I'm at a standstill. So I did, at that point, I began to think, this ain't ever even going to happen. I'm not worried about it. I'm trying to survive. You, you lose focus on something like that. That's secondary. You're trying to save your own life, then you forget all the other nonsense. I, I didn't know that I would ever put a pen to it again, you know, for that length of time. And then when my dad got me off my deathbed and said, I'll, I'll finance it. If you'll, you know, get up and write the final chapter and tack that on there where people can have a look at how it's, the story ends. And I said, yeah, I feel like that's crucial. I can fill in the interim later in, in the last nine years and have a part two. I had some dreams that made me believe that it needed to be in part one and part two at that point, And I thought, that's what I feel I'm I'm supposed to do. So we've got part one out, and now I'm still kind of in a finish-up-getting-well mode for the last four years, and I'm fixing to get really serious and complete part two. I've got to start on it. I just hadn't felt good enough to complete it. You know, I'm having to run my book sales now by myself after letting the manager go. I've had to let two go for, you know, they couldn't keep honest with me. They couldn't keep their hands off the money, and... So I just now I'm having to ship all my own books and setting up a new office, and that's just one more of the delays that I've been faced with that's keeping me from part two. But it's inevitable. I'm going to have it in the next three to four months max. There's no way around that. I have to get it done. Coming in part two, I've got a tremendous testimony for God out of all of this, and it's a real shocker. Nobody's going to see it coming. Not from me, they won't. They'll think, where'd this come from? (laughs) You know, because right now it's camouflaged with the story. And the storyline is just kind of the, the baddest, the stink bait to get a large audience. And then I'm going to come out with what I've had, you know, in my spiritual life and some supernatural experiences that are just really going to shock people. I mean, it's really going to be shocking. That's the only word to use for it. They're not going to expect this. Yeah, I look forward so to I it anyway. Kind of, maybe uh, you know, maybe Netflix will make a movie out of it. Hey. I've had mentioned, I had a phone call of, uh, you know, one little offer already. They're looking into it, but I didn't expect something like that until part two's out. But it would make a series. The story's so long that it would have to go into some kind of series. I don't see how they could compact that in two hours. You'd have to be God to, you know, put that in a sardine can. That journalist that interviewed me once, he said, how much material have you got? I'm not sure you got enough. Maybe you got a book in you. And I said, probably enough to fill a full set of volumes of Encyclopedia Britannica. And he goes, really? And I said, pretty close. And he, as he unfolded my story more and more when he was with me for a while, it didn't work out between me and him. But he saw that. He goes, you really do have a book in you. He said, this is just really incredible how much you've got. And I said, yeah, it's endless. And it is. I mean... The the material coming in part two is probably three times what's in part one. 
that's how big it is. It's it's a project. I'm gonna have to really get to writing. So is it gonna cover some of the same material, or is it gonna be something completely new and just kind of finish off? All new. All new. All new. You know, I I go to church for six years, get married to a church pianist, had that bad divorce, went back to nine more years of posting, seventy five more big deer. I had people, world renowned hunting guides, go with me. People you wouldn't think would risk it all. Now, run the risk ruining their reputation and their livelihood. And I had other people from backgrounds that you wouldn't believe would, would risk it all either. And the stories, but while I wasn't hunting, some of my outlaw buddies continued. Some of those stories are so unbelievable. You know, they got to go in the book. That, that's what I call the interim. I mean, their stories, a couple of outlaw friends, you know, George Moore, my big outlaw hunting buddy down there, and then Dennis Music. George is dead now. But Dennis was notorious from being up in Wise County all his life, and then me and him met up. <laughs> we became, you know, duels and crime, whatever you call it, partners in crime. I took him down there and showed it to him. It's like one game more than said while I was going to church and quit poaching six years. He told my old taxidermy boss, he said, what's Charlie doing? He goes, he's not hunting anymore, Ronnie. He said, yeah, but he took that darn Dennis music down there and showed that ranch to him, and he said he'll hunt that ranch till the day he dies. <laughs> so they had a grudge on me for showing it to him, but you know, me and Dennis and George were the three most wanted down there. You know, George had a heart attack and died about nine years ago, but Dennis is still living, but he's beat up too from health problems. He's not doing any more outlaw hunting. I think he's got a big yellow stripe up his back like me, you know. He, he's too old to spend any time in prison, you know. We just don't figure it's worth it anymore. Yeah. Do you I hunt still? See, I don't. Do what? Do you hunt still? I would love to. I, I did some guiding from about, uh, well, after I got off my probation, I returned to this uh, area here. I used to live in Glen Rose in the 91, 92 range, and then I moved away from here, and uh, I came back to the Glen Rose area, and I met a girl, and uh her uncle owned a game ranch at Walnut Springs, south of Glen Rose, 12 miles, and named Tom, Tom Hartzell, and met Ted Nugent hunting there and uh, guided him. And we had a couple of celebrity hunts with him playing for all the hunters that came and called it the Stroke Fest for bow hunting only, you know. And that place was like 1,800 acres and had, you know, exotics and whitetail both and, you know, good times, but. I didn't call that serious hunting. I'd chase down some cripples now and then that was kind of entertaining. But, boys, as 2003 and four got there, I began to get really ill. And I just was barely able to help him fill any feeders occasionally and set some hunters out and sit with them. And it just finally came to a point I didn't go anymore at all. I could, I just couldn't go down there. I didn't have the strength. Yeah, I bet. Well, it takes a lot out of you. It's glad to see you're on the road to recovery. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm ready. I, you know, I hope I get my strength back where I'll feel good when I'm hunting again. But I, I intend to return to hunting, and I'm you know I'm back in touch with my son. I've known him about eight or nine years now, and you know I feel sorry for all the shit he's gonna kill when I, when I get some resources to pay for it. You know, because he got a lot of catching up to do. He served in Afghanistan. He was a Marine four years. Yeah, he's, he's just never killed a good buck. I'm trying to get him a good hunt going this season, some sort, you know. you got to break you got to break his cherry. He he needs to kill a big one. Yeah, he needs to he come needs up to, to, one uh, of them rattled up. to Canada and hit Saskatchewan for a big old whitetail. Exactly. 
<laughs> Big buggers out there. Yeah, they're monsters. I saw a video years ago. They went inside a taxidermy in the middle of the season. I could not believe the mass on all those bucks that were in that taxidermy being mounted. I mean, these were some 300-inch deer and incredible mass. I didn't even know that kind of mass existed anywhere. But yeah. that's always been a dream of mine to hunt Canada, maybe yeah. now, you know. Yeah. Keep selling that book, and we'll get you up here. There you go. You're a, you're a born and raised Texan, am I right? Yeah. Yeah, I was born in East Texas in Tyler, raised in Arlington, you know, about dead middle of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, graduated high school there. And within a couple of years, I got a job offer to go to Kingsville down there in South Texas. It took me right into the heart of the King Ranch. I went down there with that as my purpose. You know, this professor, marketing management professor at the A&I University, he sold Bob White Quail mounted under glass and in furniture and all. And he stopped at a gas station and met my brother. And my brother saw something that he had and laughed at him. And he said, what's the matter? Ain't you ever seen mounted quail? And he said, yeah. He said, my brother mounts quail to make them look like shit. Well, he called me, came to see me while I was working in a shop there in Fort Worth. And after a few visits, mounting a number of birds for him, he, you know, made me an offer I couldn't refuse. I mean, that's back 76, 77. And uh, it amounted to me mounting. I could mount one an hour of those pin-raised quail, not having to wash and dry them. And it was like a $25 an hour job. And back then, that was quite a bit of money, you know. So I'd make 1000 or 1200 a week just playing. And then I only worked about six months out of the year and hunt and fish the rest. I, when I got down there, it didn't work out with the politics on the King Ranch. And he, you know, he tried, but he couldn't get me influenced enough to, you know, even with the right playing circles. And so uh, I got talked in by all the outlaws locally to jump in the fence. And once I went, you know, I got addicted real quick to seeing them big bucks running to a rattle, you know, running right in on top of you. I just like heroin to me. I couldn't believe what I was seeing, but I, there was no turning back. But I had a close call in the King Ranch on a cattle roundup, you know, stove up and hid in the cactus for about four and a half hours. And that scared me out of the King Ranch. I did hit it at night a couple of times with my buddy George and all in and out for daylight and all. But, you know, that King Ranch is mostly grassland and mesquite, and you can't hide. If they've seen you, they run you down on a horse. But I met a man in the taxidermy there that owned a section of land in the middle of the Kennedy Ranch, one county south. And it was a totally unhunted ranch at that time. And he took me on some taxidermy crate hunts, and, you know, we just jumped his fence and go any direction we wanted. We were hunting the whole county from the middle of it out. You know, it's a bird nest on the ground. And... You know, years later, when he had died, been killed, well, I went back to it, you know, after that divorce, and I just walked from the highway or take a boat ride off the bay, and, you know, I went on some really long hunts. I would stay, you know, 11, 16, uh, stay 27 days one time by myself. I didn't want to come out. I wanted to stay there. In fact, this one of the police officers that I had taken the first year back to it, my buddy Big L went by there worried about me three weeks into the hunt. He said, you think we need to call down there and, and see if he's, you know, in jail or anything? He said, no, they'll give him a call if he's been caught. He said, by now, Charlie's either dead or he's having the time of his life. <laughs> he was right. I didn't want to come out. I was having the time of my life. And on the last day, I stayed at the road the whole day in a little live oak mite. 
I got bored. I was out of everything, but the only thing I had left was white gas. I could have rendered some grease out of hog fat, but I was really famished. I'd already lost 26 pounds on that hunt, I found out when I got out. But I wanted to break the boredom, so I had three bundles of, I mean, two bundles of three bucks in each bundle. So I pulled my backpack straps off, and I pulled them bundles apart. And when I did, they just went, boosh. And a big 10-point jump right in my lap, kaboosh, kaboosh, and just pointed me like a bird dog on quail. I mean, at that point, I really got mad. I was like, I'm going to go back to the brush and stay another week. I, you know, I didn't want to come out at all. And I, I had that set up with my ride man where if, if I wasn't at the highway that night, you know, the night of the 23rd of December, that he would come back one week later. And so I knew he would just blow it off and come back in a week, and I thought, I'm going back, and I said, I can't do it. I don't have any carbohydrates. I'm famished. And I was out of tobacco, too, out of tuna back, and I said, I've got to come out. So, I mean, I didn't want to, but I did. I came on out after that 27 days. But that's a long, that was my long, long hunt. hunt. Yeah. So what do you pack yeah, in that, on these hunts? Do you, do you have to bring pack water in? And you said carbohydrates. No. In, in the Kennedy, one of the most beautiful things about it was probably the windmills. They were, you know, two to three miles, four miles apart in places, and they all had pure water. And you catch a breeze, you could go there by yourself at night and get water. And, uh, you know, if, if you had no breeze, I've tied jugs to the pipe with strapping tape, climb the windmill and fan the blade. I've had buddies stand down there and hold the jugs while I fan the blade, climb the top of the windmill. I had one crazy event happen when I was on that 27-day hunt. I had, uh, no, it wasn't on the 27-day hunt. This was with a buddy that went on a seven-day hunt, and he crippled his leg up, and he was going to rest in this one camp I had near this windmill, and so I said, I'm going to go get a, all the water I can get, and I'll be back in a minute. We had a cold front blowing hard out of the north. So I went over there to that windmill to get, get all the water I could and water him down good for. I left for a three-day hunt up north of there and hit another camp that I had. So I get over there, and the the water had, the overflow valve had gotten completely plugged up, and the water came all the way to the top of the tank. So I couldn't get pure water coming out of that, that pipe. And so I go, well, I've got to clean that overflow. And it wasn't going down very fast. That wind blowing real hard. That windmill was matching about the speed of the drain off on the overflow. And I said, i got to get out of here and get away from this windmill. I can't wait here all day. So I climbed over. I went over there and pulled the brake first. I pulled down on that brake handle, and the wire just snapped when I put all my weight on it. So I said, well, I'm going to climb the windmill, ride the sucker rod, and just hang on it until that water overflow catches up with the, the flow that would have been pumping. And I ride up and down on that sucker rod about three beats, you know, bang, those two boats broke out of the joint up there at the top. Well, then the windmill just starts spinning like a drill. I said, now what am I going to do? So I caught, you know, I was falling. I caught myself on the rail and climbed down. And I sat there and was waiting, watching the, the water level drop down, trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I said, well, I'll find me a piece of wire. I might can fix it. So I did. I went over around the windmill trap there, and I found a four-foot piece of nine-gauge wire, and I made me a staple out of it. It's a little longer on one end than the other. That was perfect. And I got up there on that windmill, and I could have seen anybody driving up for quite a distance, you know, that tall up. So I wasn't too worried about somebody driving in there on me. So I got up there, and I pulled that sucker rod back up there and matched that point where that that joint stalled momentarily before it went back up. So I got one wire in it. And then I timed it just right. When it hit that stall again, I 
you know, nail the other hole with the other end of that wire and shove that whole staple through two feet, jumped out there on it after I bent it over and twisted it into a tie knot, and I got it running again. So I fixed the windmill. So then I went back down, and I was sitting there waiting for the you know, water overflow to catch up. Had my back to this live oak tree right outside the windmill trap, and all of a sudden I see this female cow. It's real trim, pretty, you know, looked like a fox first, and then I said, no, it's a female cow. She looked at me, and then she looked over her shoulder, and she took off, coming right at me. Well, bang, 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 bang. Here comes six more big males right behind her. They were breeding her. She's coming straight at me, and they were too, and it hit me. I, I was looking at this hole in this, you know, game trail, a hole under the fence there right in front of me, just spitting distance, and I went, oh, no, they're coming through that hole. And every one of them came through that hole. Every one of them cut their eyes at me. I could have spit on every one of them. I don't know what I'd have done if they'd have turned on me, but they just glanced at me and shoot on through chasing that female. <laughs> and, man, that did it. I was wired for 220 then. I said, now nah, I'm going out there and get out of the water jug field. <laughs> so I got out there and filled up all my jugs, brushed my tracks, and I went back over to Richard in my camp, and I said, I got a story to tell you before I leave. And when I told him what happened, he goes, you're a crazy motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I had to get that water there. It was two more miles to any other windmill. You know, didn't have time to pack water to him. Wow. But I, I forgot one part. I had to go back up and untwist that wire and pull it. Because if the rancher security you know, came and found that, you know, fixed like that, they'd have known somebody been there. So I just dismissed the wire. I twisted up around it, threw it off to the side in case I ever needed it again. And that way, they didn't know anybody been there that looked like to them probably that the boat's just corroded and snapped all of a sudden under that high wind. Mm-hmm. So I had to kind of cover my trail. Yeah. I, you know, they would have been looking for me otherwise. So to give some perspective on the size of these ranches we're talking about, now the Kennedy Ranch is 235,000 square acres. And no, that's, that's nope. not correct. Now, the total amount of the Kennedy Ranch is 440000 oh, okay. But there's around 100000 on the west side of Highway 77. Until recently, I didn't even know what it was shaped like. I felt like and was told it was a narrow strip, and it was. It's about a mile plus deep for a good ways, most of the county. But down in that southwest corner, there's a big old square of the Kennedy there called it's more the Holy Land. And it used to, it was designated along with the rest to never be hunted. Well, once the Catholic Church got the ranch after Miss Old Lady Kennedy died, they started opening up the hunting. That place, the whole ranch was never to be hunted. It's all considered holy land. Well, you know, I'm sure she rolled over in her grave. But anyway, uh, I hunted the east side only. Between U.S. 77 and the Laguna Madre and Baffin Bay on the north side, there was probably over 300,000, if if not a little less. But I hunted probably a couple of hundred thousand of it for the most part because I didn't like hunting any quicker than 10 or 12 miles deep, and then I would hunt from their back. But I hunted north to south probably a total of 15 to 18 miles. There was, you know, brush bars down in the southern part that I hunted and killed quite a few good deer out of. I, I basically hunted the whole east side of the, the ranch. It's lots of ground to cover, tons of ground. To Unbelievable. Cover. Yeah. I mean, it was it would be like them looking for one man between Dallas and Fort Worth, and then that far to the north, and that far back west, and then back south. It's, it's that big a piece of property, and it's mostly solid live oak. 
there's some prairie heartland out in the middle, you know, some sand dune country and stuff, mesquite and, and all mixed with the live oaks. But it's enormous. It's got the canopy of the live oak for the most part to where finding somebody, even out of a helicopter or something with a social like that, it's just fruitless. It's just, you know, in vain. They're not, they're not going to catch you out of a helicopter with your camoed out. You hear them, you get in a brush pile, they're not going to find you. Hold up, you know. Yeah, and the, now the King Ranch is, what, double in size of that one? Yeah, I, at least it's like close to a, a 900,000 still, I think. That's what we've been told. But, you know, tracking in the Kennedy was usually no problem. The loose, dry sand would just fall back in your tracks and so much game, they'd just beat your tracks up real quick. But when I got caught, it had been raining three days. And it just, the sand was just like making a, a perfect imprint, a mulage of your boot track. So they had that advantage. And in the high wind, it was real windy. That kept me from hearing them. I didn't hear any vehicles in that area. There were some in there. I didn't hear them. You know, had I heard pressure, I would have moved and they wouldn't have caught me when they did. So now do they, they have guys... Just- do they have guys that are just out looking for poachers? That's their job? Absolutely. They, they've got trackers working both those ranches all the time. I mean, they basically guard the perimeter till they get on a set of tracks, and they'll go you know deep as they have to. They'll stay on those tracks for days. There's actually a worse ranch about that to the west, which is harder to not leave tracks. They'll put a lantern up. They'll stay on you all night. They'll come after you like they did Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, they will not let up. They'll catch you the next day, the next night, the next night after that. They'll stay on that trail till they catch you. You know, the name of that ranch in Jim Hall County is the Robert East, and they've busted so many people trying to go in there and kill them Boone and Crockett deer. It's not even funny. They catch almost all of them. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've been in there. I don't want to go back. I, You know, I, I made up my mind before I got caught to never go back to that ranch. You know, we were pinned down in it. So outside of these ranches, what kind of hunting opportunities are there in Texas? Anything under the sun. We've got so many exotic ranches now, you know, stocked. And the the white pails have been imported from all over the country and crossbred, thoroughbred, and they're multi-point 300-plus inch deer. I just don't care to shoot anything behind a high fence like that. You know, yeah. I've never had any desire to do that, but there's, there's a market for it. People pay it. You know, people pay ridiculous amounts. Lately, it's gotten so overstocked, they run specials. They'll sell you 200-plus inch deer for about 2500 in some places to kill them before they die of old age and they don't get anything for them. Yeah. You know. I heard you say before say- that the uh, true Texas whitetails are, are all dead. It's just about over. The King and Kennedy Ranch is a stronghold of them. There's brush country over there south of uh, Freer, all the way down in the, the, you know, from Laredo and stuff across. There's still native herds. There's native deer out west to extreme west Texas where the whitetails end and the mule deer take over. But by and large, all these high fence deer, they escape all the time. They brought them into so many areas and they brought so many of them in. While their horns are dropped, shed, you know, they'll go through water gaps. They'll get out of weak spots in the fence, and then there's free-range places nearby, and they just scattered everywhere and crossbred everything. And the true beautiful whitetails that Texas always had have been polluted. They've been crossbred. They're not the same body. They're not the same horns. You know, 
you see all those white horns that you used to see only up north. You know, they're they're in the area now. That just used to never see nothing in Texas white horned. They all had good color, red, orange, chocolate, maroon, you know. They all had good horn color and beautiful design. Now you get a lot of these old massive round pines with no bladed diamond-shaped character to any of their points. And, you know, they're just big, ugly battle oxes is what I call them. I don't care anything about killing them kind of deer. But, you know, I, I don't know. There's no way back. Just like the Paladera Canyon up in the Amarillo area, they brought in those Zodad. Well, there's no way they can eradicate them now. They didn't expect them to do that good, and they just took off like a bottle rocket. Well, now they would like to get them out and replace them with bighorn because they feel like the bighorn would have done great. Mm. It's too late. There's no way they'll ever exterminate the Zodad now. I mean, there's about a 150-mile stretch of that canyon or more that they're in, and they just took it over. Yeah, once uh, yeah. yeah, some species once they get into an area, that's uh, that's it. It's just like those uh, wild hogs; they pretty much yeah. everywhere. Yeah, they've took over Texas. They're starting to fight back. They've got all these helicopter hunts now, so in any open terrain where they can work on them good, they hammer them. Yeah. But you know, you pay for the hunt five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars, and. And you and a buddy can go and just, you know, shoot the piss out of them hogs. They'll run you right down on them. Open fire at will, you know. But I imagine that's a lot of fun. I wouldn't mind doing that someday just for the fun of it. Yeah, they, uh, they're they even starting to see those wild hogs up here in Canada now. So Really? Yep. That's too bad. Yeah, they kind of yeah, just... There was an old man that owned the Kennedy Ranch before he died. He was Sarita Kennedy's son, I believe, some marital son or something. Anyway... He was in charge of it. He and his son were given lifetime grazing rights. And Tom would hear me shoot, and he'd come in there the next day on a predator roundup and try to catch me while he had five, six, seven helicopters in the air. And it was pretty nerve-wracking. You know, I just had to stay holed up in the brush pile all day, and they'd be popping buckshot down through that air under them blades. And, I mean, just kind of scare you out. All day long. And they blew the leaves off my hair several times. And every time they did, I just covered my head back up with more leaves and sand. You know, I didn't want to be there that day, but I had two big heads on the backpack I'd already killed the morning before. I believe that's why they called that predator roundup. They pulled a Jeep near me after popping them two shots. About 400 yards apart, I doubled and killed two good bucks. And so I would look at those deer for a minute, and I used to smoke weed, and I'd coke a little to calm my nerves and look at my racks, and then, here come another helicopter beelining me, and I let them bury my heads and roll over and face down in the dirt again while they passed by me in the helicopters. But and it wasn't it wasn't fun at all. My buddy George had seen him going in that morning at daylight when he come off a rig at daylight and was going back home, and he he went to my house and he told my girlfriend Betty. He said Charlie hunting. She said, Well, I'm not gonna say. He goes, Well, if he's hunting down there, he better get ready. He said, I just saw Tom East pull five helicopters into Lower Kennedy. <laughs> it's amazing that they throw one. that. It's amazing they throw that many resources at, at one guy just killing some, you know, killing a few deer. Yeah, and it wasn't about the, the penalty. It wasn't that I was committing murder, but that Tom East man, he was crazy about those deer. He wouldn't let his own mother shoot one of them. He wanted them to stay left alone. And so the thought of somebody killing them would drive him crazy. And he was rich. He could write a check for $200 million. So the money was just pocket change putting up that many helicopters. 
but you know he just couldn't he just, stand the thought of somebody killing them big deer. He wanted them all for himself. He just wanted them to be left alone. I'll tell you how he really felt. This buddy of mine, Pat Lane, coming out with his book. It's out now. It's called Before the Stories Are Lost. And Pat, knowing Pat and his stepdad, uh, Wayne Hornsby, they had a welding shop at South Furious, and Tom would come in there and have them do work. Well, one of the foremen to Tom's ranch came in with these big shed horns one time and gave them to Wayne, and Wayne screwed them on a plaque and stuck them up there like a plaque mount, you know, on the wall. He'd come in, he said, where'd you get them horns? And he said, ah, your foreman so-and-so gave them to me. And he said, you know, Wayne didn't think it was a big deal. He goes, that's what I thought. And I thought those come off my ranch. He said, get them down. He got them down and took them. He went back and fired the foreman that gave them to Wayne and took them off the plaque they were screwed on and threw them both out in the pasture. Shut out. That's how crazy about him he was. Wow. <laughs> so how many he deer did you take off his ranch? Between me and all the friends I took, we brought out a total of 116 trophy deer in those, you know, 22-year span that I did all that. 116 um, trophy. Those are trophy deer. That's not including – now you guys are shooting deer uh, while you're out there just to eat, weren't you? Sometimes if we didn't have a kill going on, we would take some meat. I know I did a lot on the long hunt, but I tried to kill the hogs because I'd rather eat them because they put more energy back in me. You know, eating those small hogs, take the top of the hams off and, you know, marble in fat that give you good energy. That put something back in you. You know, you at the last, though, the last three or four years, I went really like high tech on a lot of things plus my food. I'd take freeze-dry mashed potatoes, instant potatoes in there, and boy, at the end of a long day, heat up some water and make them hot potatoes and squeeze that parquet butter out on them <laughs> that would make you sleep good you know you'd wake up feeling rested the next day but i ate you know like a king i liked eating the hearts the livers you know the underloins and of course backstrap but on the hogs that ham couldn't be beat the backstraps were too lean they wouldn't do nothing for you you eat them hams on a 40 50 pound hog that put something back in you the next day you were ready to hunt yeah yeah i mean it's uh <laughs> You know, a 10 to 20 day hunt on itself is, takes a lot out of a guy. Never mind, uh, trying to run from, you know, from ranchers and lawmen. Yeah, it's a marathon. It's an endurance challenge. It's sort of like these triathlon deals. You know, like I said, I went in there at 194 and come out 26 pounds lighter 27 days later. So that's how fast you, you know, you burn everything in you. Yeah. How many hunts did you, like, what was your regular hunting season? Oh, I like to start right at the 1st of December, and I like to hunt hard those first three weeks. And occasionally, just about the turn of the year, I'd go over west in the brush and hunt the first, second week of January in Demick County, where a lot of the book deer are, and uh, that heavy cactus country. And that's a different hunt entirely. Those deer are so smart, and they come in downwind 70, 80, 90 yards downwind, and you got to take a partner with you, and you got to put them 50 to 60 yards downwind to you. For example, the first time I went, took this buddy of mine, I told him, you know, you go at least 50 yards downwind, just do downwind and look downwind, look both sides of it, but look downwind because they're going to come in below that. These deer are smart. The big ones are real smart. He counted 48 bucks. I saw one of them first day. I rattled 48 deer to him. I only saw one. It came blowing by me from upwind to me and just blew by me and screeched to a halt five yards past me. 
you know, when he winded me, and his tail came up and started quivering and shaking. He was a good heavy 155-inch ten point, and then he just exploded out of there, you know. He liked to came out of his skin when he took off. And I asked my buddy, I said, did you see that one blowing out of there? And he goes, yeah. And I said, yeah. He stopped right on me and then burned off. And, you know, so he saw 48 to my one because oh. he was 50, 60 yards downwind of me. And most of the deer he saw came in downwind of him. So that's how smart they are in that cactus country. You got to have a hunting partner. You can't see 20, 30 yards in most places. So you got to separate like that. Did you guys move around lots? Like you guys were, you must have been scared that uh, that these ranchers or, or cowboys are going to hear your gunshots. Well, what happened was in my latter years, I developed these mop bottom boots. I took parachute cord, drilled 10 holes in my combat boots, and sewed with a wire needle and parachute cord. I sewed these mop replacement heads on the bottom of my combat boots, and I was track free then. So we could, we, we, we relaxed then. We're like, there's no way they can track us. So we weren't sweating it. We had a little consideration for maybe rattling someone to us with the antlers. But, you know, you can hear in a heavy brush, you hear something coming to you. In fact, my buddy George, he heard brush breaking like that once and threw his gun up and thought it was going to be a big buck come out. And it was a deputy game warden in a ranch security, you know, and they threw down on him with what looked like automatic weapons. You know, drop the gun. He said, I'm just a hunter. Drop the gun. Well, they caught him on his first rattle. But he wasn't using any track-free mops on his boots or nothing. So they were tracking right to him. Oh, did you ever worry about any of these guys you're hunting with, ratting you out? Well, you know, the cops, when I first took them, I thought, no, this might be a setup. But then I just let it fly. I just let it roll, and it was okay. They were not. They were not setting me up, and they just they never killed a big deer. Tired of all the high prices, and they were disgruntled about you know paying places, and and they're all shot out and no deer, and they go home empty again, and and they were just ready to end their search and get them one. They wanted to go one time for one big trophy buck, you know, fulfill the dream, and they were never going to go again. That was a promise one made to his wife and the other one to his girlfriend. But when I got set up at the end, that guy. You know, he fooled me. I thought, this guy's the last person that would help the law. I didn't know he'd been tested positive for dope, was fixed to be, you know, revoked and sent back to prison. But he's just an alcoholic, drug addict, beach rat, commercial outlaw fisherman. I had no clue he was going to set me up. Mm. So if, how if old I are did, you? I wouldn't have went. How old are you when you killed your, or when you killed your first uh, illegal deer? 19. Yeah, I, I shot my first illegal deer, though, in Louisiana in a tree stand with my first father-in-law. I had no license, you know, so that's what made it illegal. But it was just a little four-point, but I didn't know much more about it for another two years or so. And then I moved to South Texas, and it just blew wide open for me within a year of being down there. I mean, within a couple of seasons, I shot Big John, my biggest deer ever, extremely massive, and, you know, Rattle up a 178-inch scarecrow for my buddy George, and we just started hammering big heads in the mid-170s over and over, you know. <laughs> it just got ridiculous. I killed a double drop. I've shot them with nearly every shape they come in, you know. In fact, I was in East Texas while I was quitting poaching, going to church, and I ran into these five guys from Houston after I'd 
rattled up a little late point, and the guy shot it right out from under me and I gutted it for him and went on down about three miles down the creek and hit a fence, big sign on it, posted, you know, and I looked and read the sign, and I turned to walk away, and this old man come out from behind that great big tree trunk, and he said, yeah, that's right, you better not come over here, I got a gun. Well, I was getting pretty angry by then about the whole situation, shots being fired all day long, and I... I said, old man, don't start talking tough to me. I got a gun, too. And he said, well, I'm sorry. I said, well, I ain't got time to hear it. So I went up the hill, and I found some good sign. I rattled up two hunters with their guns on their shoulders pointing right at me. I said, hey. They said, man, we thought you were two bucks fighting. I said, I know what you thought. I just got up and got out of there, and I ran into these five guys from Houston on four-wheelers, and they were sitting around drinking beer, smoking weed. So, you know, went in Rome, do what the Romans do. So, they telling their buck stories and pulling little pictures of curl eight points out of their wallets and showing them around, and they were proud of them. That was real great, you know. I didn't say nothing. And uh, finally they looked at me and they said, well, I said, well, what? They said, you ever kill any big deer? I said, I guess you could say I've killed some big deer. I said, I've shot them with devil drops, devil forks, devil handlebars, 25-inch spreads, 20 points, massive horns. I said, I guess you could say I've killed one in about every shape they come in. And they were looking at each other like, this guy's a nut. <laughs> and so, got any pictures? No, no, I don't got any pictures. Where'd you kill them? Down on the King Ranch, Kennedy Ranch. Really? Yeah, I used to be a big poacher down there, and I'm not anymore. But And you ain't got no pictures? I said, no. Well, I told them about rattling up that eight-point buck for that guy that morning, and they didn't believe that either. Let me see the blood on your hands. Well, I'd wash my hands in the you know, flooded boggy creek area down there. So they didn't believe that. Well, they said, we'll give you a ride back to your camp. So we start heading towards the camp. I'm on the back one of the four-wheelers. And that guy that I rattled the buck up for came in a Suburban with another friend. And they had that buck tied up on the top on the luggage rack. And he goes, hey, there's that guy that rattled him up and gutted him for me. Well, then they knew I was telling the truth about that. So they were like, He's telling the truth about that. And you could just see their minds wandering. wonder if he really killed all them big deer he said he did. So we got to a fork in the road, and the three of them said, we're going up here and check for tracks. Where we're going to hunt tomorrow. The other one said, yeah, we're going over here up this clear cut, and we're going to look for tracks there. I said, all right, thanks for the ride. So I started walking. and walked about 100 yards. I said, I'm going to get something to drink. So I got my backpack off and started. I forgot to say one thing, though. They hit a tree down over the road on purpose. I think they got jealous of me. And they hit this tree without slowing down on it, and it threw me off that four-wheeler. If I hadn't had my backpack on, I'd probably been hurt. But I got up, shook it off. I could see them winking at each other, smiling. They did it on purpose. So when we split up, I walked up about 100 and got me a drink out and started sipping on it. They didn't go very far up that clear cut, turn around and come back. And when they come back by me at an angle, they're about 100 yards, but it's glass still right at dark. And I heard one of them say, well, there goes that guy. He said, you reckon he really killed all them big deer he said he did? And the other one said, hell no, that's the lioness son of a bitch you'll ever meet in your life. <laughs> Little did they know, so, eh? Right, but they were from Houston. So when I was at the Houston, Texas Trophy on show, I thought I might run into him, one of them that figured out who I was, but I didn't. But it could happen in the future. That was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So what's... uh? What's the biggest deer you've seen on on uh, on the ranch? Well, I actually saw my biggest deer, you know, non-typical buck. He had six forks on a 12 or more frame, 
extremely massive. He looked like something that come out of Canada, but it was over in LaSalle County at Instanel. He was on the Red Nunley Ranch, a completely different ranch than I hunted most of the time. And, uh, you know, walking a little creek with this young kid and, and uh, eight points jumped down in the bottom of the gully and the gul- uh, gulch and stuck a landing on the rim on the top and looked back, looked over his shoulder. And I looked where he was looking back at, and I saw a doe. And I was watching that doe. We just both come to a stop, and my buddy never saw the buck I saw. But behind the doe, I could see like a double ear. It looked like two ears lined up where you could just see the about one-inch outline around the other. I've, I've told this story lately, and I remember now seeing that double ear. It, it fascinated me. I was like, what the heck's that about? But right about that time, the whole mesquite tree started moving. His head and rack were up in the mesquite overhanging limbs, and I saw him. And he was easily, you know, looking back now with all my years of experience, he was easily a 220 deer. I've seen bucks in the big rack book that, you know, no bigger than him. He was huge. And he turned and ran down. His rack was sticking up above her back as he ran. He hobbled, you know, three or four yards, stopped at an overhanging low limb, ducked his rack underneath. He couldn't even get under that limb without stopping. And then he did it again about two or three yards later. And I just froze. I just dropped my jaw and was looking at him. I could not believe how big that deer was. I should have been throwing up trying to get off a shot. He was in the clear while he hobbled and stopped those two times. But I just wasn't an experienced enough hunter. It happened about the second year I was you know, down there outlaw hunting. I had no idea I was going to see a deer that big. And to tell you the truth, it was just pure case of buck fever. I just froze up instead of trying to throw up and get off a shot. But I turned to my buddy and I said, did you see that buck? He said, I saw that little eight point jump the creek. I said, no, behind that doe was a monster. And he goes, no, I didn't see it. I said, he's run off. I, I just gawked at him. I couldn't think to shoot. I mean, he was a monster, the, period. You know, he go way in the book, non-typical. Wow. And that was the biggest deer I've ever seen on any of my hunts. you never seen him again? I, no, that heavy brush over there. And then that kid and another kid went back uh, around Thanksgiving and got caught in there. They got tracked down and got caught. And so when I got back down there from Fort Worth and been up here for Thanksgiving, I, I heard they got caught and I wasn't going in there. That pasture was hot. It's about a 20,000 acre pasture. And I said, oh, I'm not going to go back. They're tracking people in there like that, you know. So I didn't ever even try to go find that deer again. Yeah. Did the law ever give you, uh, did they hassle you much when they, you know, when you're just out and about? When you ever you, they bumped you, because well, they must have they known who you were. Ever, yeah, they knew all about me the whole time, but they they didn't have any opportunities to encounter me as much dove hunting as I did down there with my buddy Pat. I'm real surprised some of them wardens. We saw wardens drive by those county roads where we were bird hunting, and we were right out there in some low, you know, cut maze and whatnot. And I'm surprised they would just blow on by and go somewhere else. They were heading somewhere, and. Uh, they didn't stop and check us or nothing. But we were shooting over the lemon on dove all the time down there, just nearly every evening. But they never had checked me. I never, I, you know, I don't know if I wrote this one story, but it's a funny one. The first year down there, we couldn't wait to shoot some ducks and stuff, so we went to this salt creek there that bordered the King Ranch out, you know, to the east side of 77. And we got stuck in the mud going down in there before daylight. So we thought, well, what the hell, we'll worry about getting unstuck after we hunt. So we shot some teal, we shot some black-bellied tree ducks that weren't supposed to be shot, and then we, uh, this one buddy of mine shot a big old pelican. I didn't ever 
you know, tell the story on that because he, I told him, I said, you go down there and bury that thing. That's, that's prison. Well, we'd shot these black belly tree ducks and some little wading birds just for target practice. And one couple of them were in the high grass. And so my buddy said, well, I better go to town, hitchhike in and get a ride, get somebody out here to help us. We didn't have no cell phones back then in 76, 77. Well, he gets a ride. A guy picks him up. And as soon as he gets on 77, a blazer comes up beside him with a winch on it. Well, he flags them down. It's five game wardens. It's it's actually four wardens in uniform and Mac Doodle, King Ranch Chief Security. And he says, hey, me and my buddies are duck hunting down in the Salt Creek. Anyway, I could talk you into, you know, we'll pay you to come down there and pull us out with your winch. So sure, we'll pull you out. He said it wasn't until they got there and got out of that blazer they were in that he realized they were uniform game wardens. He had seen the driver, which was Mac. Well, <laughs> they pulled us out. They got me for uh, shooting them two little wading birds because my buddy told them I shot them when they confronted him about it and uh, got Steve for one uh, violation, a plug. Uh, he, he'd come with a shotgun he just bought and it didn't have a plug. Well, they got him for no plug, and they got Fred for one of them black-bellied tree ducks. But that was the first hunt we made in that area for anything. And and we met the four top-named game wardens. It's like Cliff Schaefer, Kenneth Richardson. He's the one that shot the big, poached the big deer in the King Ranch Refuge and was fired later. But um, I can't think of a couple of the others, but Mac Doodle, King Ranch Chief of Security, and um, – it might come to me later who them other wardens were. I, I I don't remember if I wrote that in part one or not. See, the illness kept me from ever even re you know proofreading what I wrote. There's stories that I don't have in there. I'll bet I never proofread it. And by reading back through it, I would have remembered things that I left out too. I, I've got a plan in the future to you know once I get part two. I'm going to go back through part one, and I'm going to get everything in there that I've left out and stuff that's of any value and put it in there because I've had some funny shit happen, and that's one of the stories I feel like for sure I did not write that. I'm not sure about it, but I may have. I don't think I put that in there. No, I I don't remember it, but uh, it's a good story. Yeah, so we paid our fines. What it amounted to, total, Fred got a 35 or 37 50 fine. I got a twenty-seven fifty fine. Coop got a twenty-seven fifty fine. So for around ninety dollars, we got a record speed to pull us out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, worked out, worked out about the same, you know. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit more about these uh, these cops that uh, they got you back into Outlaw because there was what six years when when you had uh, you cleaned it up. Yeah, yeah. They uh, had me mount some bear rugs, some other heads and stuff you know small stuff some birds and i knew them pretty well you know i just knew they were sincere you know men that loved to hunt that were cops now they didn't hold my past against me they really enjoyed seeing my big old deer but until i went through that bad divorce and was free they never had any inkling about asking me to take them or you know tell them where to go or nothing they wouldn't have went by themselves without a guide that really knew the way around in there and knew how to get away with it. But once I was uh, clear and free from the divorce, when that next hunting season came, I'd gotten real fit again. And this, everybody, all my friends were like, he's going to go back to it. They could just feel it. And so they were watching me, all eyes on me, you know, would I stay straight or would I go back to outlaw hunting? 
I had no intentions of doing it. But then here comes that first cop one day in there, and I had this 141-inch heavy horn Palapena County buck, and he got all fired up. And deer were starting to rut here in Texas. And uh, my buddy George, the day before, had just gone, and, and he called me and told me, he said, I rattled up 14 bucks for my nephew yesterday. They're telling the horns good. So when I told the cop that, he got real fired up. About that time, my buddy Big L come in, and he said, let me take you over to my house and show you my head. So he takes this cop over to his house and shows him his nine monsters he killed in the Kennedy while I wasn't poaching. And he came back, and he goes, you got to take me, CB. And I'd already told him no, but he kept saying, you know, I've got two days off right now. And I said, we can't go down there and back in two days. We need at least four days. And he goes, just give me a minute. I'm going to go talk to my chief. Well, he goes and talks to his chief. He leaves my shop in the squad car in uniform. He comes back in about an hour, plain clothes, brand-new big red truck that he just bought days before with paper plates on it. His girlfriend had his regular truck he was going to trade in, but he hadn't exchanged that yet. And so we go in his brand-new big red truck. We drove all night to get there. We got kicked out about 3 in the morning. We walked 12 miles deep by daylight, and he said, i got to take a nap. I said, well, let me rattle one time before you decide whether you're going to take a nap or not. And so I beat the bone, and three bucks came running in and a cow, and he goes, fuck it, let's hunt. <laughs> so, you know, before the end of the first day, he shot a 20-inch inside spread, 10-point, with 157-inch on the score. But, you know, that was what he wanted. He said, "I need a, if you can get me a 20-inch spread, 10-point, I'll go. And that's what he got. And then I come back with him. We get stopped by Highway Patrol coming in, and then, of course, when he pulled the bears, they let us go. They'd seen that no, no front license plate when we come up behind them. Well, we get back to town there, and he goes, now, listen, I don't know if I can tell my partner or not. He said, we're real close friends, but he's by the book. I said, it's your call. I'm going to tell anybody. So I get my taxidermy after he left, a big photo op with my buddy Supercoop sniffing me out out in the parking lot. He was waiting on us when we drove up. But anyway, that phone rings. And I recognized the voice. It was the second cop. And he said, is this the world's greatest white-tailed deer guide? I said, you got him. He said, you got to take me too, man. I've seen the bone. He said, I've seen the wood pile. You got to take me. So I take him next, and we go on a four-day hunt. And he kills a, a 174 Pope and Young deer with his longbow. Rattled it up at eight yards or less, probably seven yards, and shot him right in the throat. You know, he wheeled as he stuck him, and blood burst everywhere. That cedar air shattered. I mean... It was just, you know, the hunt of all lifetime for him, a dream hunt of dream hunts. And uh, he killed another freaky deer and crippled up a couple others. You know, he was having fun with that longbow in there. But both of them, you know, I rattled up over 100 bucks for both of them. You know, they, they'd never seen nothing like it. Wow. And they would never, you know, they never intended to go again, just that one one-time deal. But it was funny. I was trying to figure out how they had so much pool with the chief to get the extra days off. And when I got in there with the second cop, he told me a story on the chief and him. And then I knew what had happened. You know, the chief was an outlaw. The chief was an outlaw fisherman with a second cop. They went down to this Squaw Creek Lake that's right near here where I'm at with the nuclear reactors and all. It's got power plant there. 
And the lake was not even open yet. They were still in the stocking time allotment, you know, where they stocked it heavy and it was not full yet, and they weren't letting anybody fish. Well, this chief and him were riding 10 speed bikes to carrying inner tubes and scuba flippers, and they were going in that lake before it was even open. They'd been in there several times and got away with it, but this game warden caught or cornered them one day, and he came up on the other side of the bank from where they were going to have to make their exit, you know, and so that's where the game warden messed up. He should have went around the lake and come in where they had their bikes hid and everything. So he said, all right, I got y'all. Y'all come on over here now. He said, what do we do? And he said, just start swimming slow to the bank. And, I mean, they had stringers, eight, ten-pound bass. That old chief said, no, nope, no. Nope. He said, I'll tell you what, we're going to chalk this one up to experience, and we won't be back. And he pulled a cigar out of his shirt pocket. Unwrapped the plastic wrapper, bit the end off of it, fired it up, started blowing smoke rings, and he said, "You better get over here, you blamity blam blam blam." He goes, "No, nah, you're not gonna shoot anybody over fishing." He said, "The way I figured," he said, "We'll be halfway back to Mineral Wells time you get around to this side of the lake." And he cussed them up real good again, you know, and then they just started moving towards the bank slow and walked up over the bank. When he got to the other side in the gully, he said, "Run." He said, why didn't you say run to start with? He said, I wasn't giving that game more than the satisfaction of seeing me run. <laughs> <laughs> but he was the chief of police there in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Wow. Yeah, so that just goes to show you, you know, there ain't no line drawn in the sand on who will poach a deer or a fish or whatever, you know. That's just like this old game one told me once. He served a warrant on me and my girlfriend for an antelope. And he said, there ain't no line drawn the sand on who will shoot a deer poaching or not. He said, I've caught bankers, doctors, lawyers, preachers. I said, have you caught the Pope? He said, no, but I'm looking for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, that's funny. We're all tempted, you know. But, yeah. yeah. So do you think I've, it was uh, the hunting the deer or just the, or just, you know, breaking the law, the the thrill of getting caught that uh, that drove you the most? Well, it was born out of a love for wanting to kill a big deer, and I got engulfed in that. But as I got better and better at it, and I saw that I had the upper hand, that I'd come out of there disappointed sometimes if I didn't have some heat, you know, to make it funny. Because <laughs> when they put up the helicopters, I'd laugh. I mean, I stayed fit, you know, my whole life. I could run four or five miles the minute I heard them pulling trailers in there with choppers on them, and I'd already be two, three miles away by the time they got them in the air. And I just start laughing my ass off. In fact, we get four miles on them, we start hunting again. You know, they'd be down there just burning up, mowing the brush with them helicopters, and we'd be four miles away hunting again, laughing at them. You know, yeah, you know, hot pursuit. I love it. I love it. You know, but that wasn't why we went. We went in there to kill the big deer. But when the shit hit the fan. You know, it was interesting, you know, to say the least, but entertaining. But <laughs> I bet. I can yeah, imagine. That was fun. It's, I uh, had a buddy with me who was real nervous one time, and a helicopter came on us, but I could tell it was a gauger heading out to some wells. And I said, here, hold my rattling horns. He said, we're not going to run and hide. And I said, not this time. He said, why not? And I dropped my overalls I had on and mooned the helicopter as he went by, and he goes, you're crazy, motherfucker. <laughs> 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 yeah. You are, no yeah, doubt. Just one of them, yeah, just one of them well workers. I mooned him. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's quite the, that's quite the career of chasing deer, man. Yeah, it was 
double the fun being an outlaw, but that wasn't why I started doing it. I was after a big deer. I couldn't get one. I couldn't get an invite on the politics. At that time, see, when I first went down there for the first seven years, the King Ranch didn't even sell hunts. It was, you know, an invite or nothing. So it wasn't about me working, saving some money, and paying for a hunt. You couldn't pay to hunt. I had some day lease hunting. We did, me and my buddy Supercoop did some day lease hunting up Demi County the first season we were there. And then the next year, I went outlaw. But, you know, hunting those day leases and stuff is just bullshit. You're not going to kill nothing on them shot out places like that. It's just a rip off. But, you know, the politics kept me from having any chance to hunt the King Ranch. So when I went outlaw, you know, there was no turning back. I saw it as the only way I could do it. I couldn't afford a giant fee, but, you know, I would have tried to do that if that was available. But there was no hunting available for any amount of money to anyone at that time. Really? Yeah, they got to hurting over a bunch of gas and oil bottom outs and, and cattle dropped and they tried diversifying into agriculture, and that fell out, and they spent a lot of money on that and cleared a lot of brush. Now they're wishing they'd have left all that brush alone with all them deer in it because they eventually had to start selling their deer herd. And now that's primarily what they do. My buddy Pat in his book talks about that. He circled the whole King Ranch the other day, and he didn't see one bull, one Sangatrudis anywhere. He said they're just keeping their you know, tax write-off on the cattle and selling those big deer for, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. Oh, through hunting. Yeah. Yeah, wow. the hunting saved them. Huh. That's crazy. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's, that's it, Texas. Yeah. Well it, you know, up here in our province, British Columbia, we have ninety four percent of our provinces public land, so I mean we have basically unlimited hunting opportunities. So yeah, it's interesting to, to hear stories like that. Yeah. It's sort of a dictatorship. It's gone completely out of control. The landowners, you know, took over. It, Pat's got the dates and the details, but it was something like this. When it starts out, we were understanding as Texans that the deer, and according to the Constitution, belong to the citizens of the state, of each state. Okay, if you're a Texan, you got a right to fill your tags. Well, then it started being charged ridiculous rates, you know, as people wanted to do it more and more. They saw a market, and these getting, these breeders start bringing in the big deer and, and pen-raising them and selling them for exuberant prices. And then the hunters come out of the city, them city slickers, shoot them big deer, and lie about it, say it was a real hunt when it was nothing but a 100-acre can trap. And, you know, it escalated from that to, like I said, the big remaining unhunted properties. They got to hurting on the cattle market and gas and oil, and they began to sell the deer because the value of them had come up so high. But it was like 1983, I think, that Pat said that the the deer were declared by the Parks and Wildlife as property of the landowners. No longer they did belong to the citizens of the state. They belonged to the landowner. Okay, they trumped that years later with all this high fence stuff going on, and they bust these. Guys hauling whitetail out of season, buying and selling. They can't take possession of them. But they say that the minute they release a load of whitetail deer into a property to stock it, those deer become property of the state, even though they bought them like livestock. Now, it's so screwed up now. You know, who's right and who's wrong? It's just completely out of control. Yeah. It's just a bunch of modern-day carpetbaggers selling and making money off these people's love for hunting. You yeah, know, it, 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 it's 
sort of like extortion. It sounds like I a hate lot to see what to me. Yeah, I hate to see what it's come to. And if you want a, a real outline on it, it's like this uh, founder of a book called Big Rack. I won't even say his name, but he was big down there in deep South Texas and, and studied the Muy Grande contest every year. And for the 50 years that he was a professional legal guide, not one deer was killed over 250 inches that was entered in the Muy Grande contest. And then all of a sudden now they're getting a half a dozen to a dozen a year. And he told the owner of that place there in Freer, he said, not one was killed in 50 years. I've been down here, and now you're telling me there's no tag holes and no tags in these you know, 300, 400-inch deer coming in here. He said, bullshit. You know, he knew better than believe that shit. Shady. So it's ruined, you yeah. know. But, Pretty shady. But they kill these 300-and-something-inch deer every year down there now. Huh. It's, yeah. It, it's just it, it's nothing to be proud of to me. I mean, I outlawed my deer. You know, that's there's some shame in that game, I guess. But I didn't look at it that way back then. I looked at it like I was taking those deer between me and God. George used to say that. He said, what a man does in that ranch is between him and God. It's a shame it's gotten to where it is. It's just out of control. So you must have a, a good collection of trophies, whitetail trophies. Part of my story is when I quit poaching for six years, I turned in what I had killed to that point, minus a few that I'd borrowed some money against. So when I went back to the poaching, it was like starting all over. And most of the really big ones, I'd let my friends kill. And they, my buddies would say, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean, what am I doing? They said, you got a reputation for being the one that always kills the biggest deer. And I said, well, I've got a new reputation now. I'm the one that's known for letting all my buddies kill the big one now. <laughs> yeah, they must have <laughs> like that. Enjoyed, yeah, I enjoyed making their dream come true. That meant more than killing one myself. I'd already killed so many, you know. Mm-hmm. So but, tell tell me a little yeah. bit about uh, about your hunt leading up to when you got busted. Well, there is some stuff involved in that. Um, I'd grown tired of the poaching, like I said, and that. January, I was in the Pelon Sea over there in the brush and by myself, mop bottom boots, track free, climbed a tree, and I was trying to get a view on where I wanted to go next. I heard some voices on a radio and a squelch static, and I thought, uh oh, somebody could be seeing me from up here. So I got down of that tree real quick, saddled up my backpack again, and started running. And I was in thick brush, and I ran across a sandero I didn't know was there, and I could hear a truck coming by then, and it was coming right down that sandero right at me. And, you know, I ran across it at that point. I had no choice, and they saw me, you know, a couple hundred yards from me. Well, I got up in this real thick brush within a 100 yards, and I got so thick I stalled out in it and hung up in it. I got snagged up, couldn't hardly move. I had to fight my way out of that, but I was kind of laughing to myself, and I was thinking, welcome to the big leagues, boys. I knew they weren't going to be able to track me, and I heard the Spirit of God say, you will be caught this year. And I said, right, they're going to catch the king. And he said, you will be caught this year. So two weeks later, I'm in the Kennedy on this unlimited hunt. It's going to be about three weeks, what I figured. They caught me on the third evening, but... I'd been sitting at the spot watching my back trail for about two hours, and then I got up, went back over there to my pack, and all of a sudden was just about 
10 minutes from hitting the horizon going down, I was going to cross this big prairie four miles to the west to this other brush and start hunting there the next day. And I was out of water and was going to get water right there to windmill, but I said, no, I'm going to wait and get it over there at the Parita. So I watched my back trail for two hours. Well, the game wardens had been so close on my trail, they crossed right behind me. I'd made one rattle about 200 yards from there and rattled up a pretty nice buck, took his picture, and then switched the move, you know, after two hours of watching my back trail. And I heard some steps below me. And I ain't kidding you. I knew it was human footsteps. I've been listening to my footsteps in that ranch 20 years. I know what they sound like on them leaves, and I got spooked. I got up, tiptoed over there about 10 yards, and looked down in that bottom. And it's about 30 feet down into that oak bottom, and I didn't see nothing. But I heard about two or three footsteps leaving out to my right about 30 yards. And I went, well, I guess it was a nail guy or something. But it spooked me. I knew it sounded more like human footprints. So I got back over there, and I picked my backpack up, put it on my shoulder, and I was going to move. I mean, my instincts kicked in, and I said, get in the brush. Get in the brush. I heard it twice. And I'd always follow my instincts like that, and it saved me a few times. Well, I heard the Spirit of God say, just sit back down 10 more minutes. And I thought, well, I need about 10 minutes before it's safe to go out in that clearing and get the sun off of me. And so I thought he was trying to help me. Well, he was trying to help get me caught. <laughs> I sat back down, and I hadn't been sitting down five minutes, and I had a little candy bar to get a little energy to cross that prairie on it. Got a dip going as soon as I got that dip Copenhagen going. I hear, there he is right there. Get your hands up. And, I mean, I turned around, come up on one knee, and there was eight men in a wall 18 yards from me. They just topped that hill right on me. They had gave up. They were going to, you know, regroup and circle the brush and take the easy path out but that's what led them right to me was getting outside of that thick brush and they ran right up to me in just like 2.3 seconds and they had five pistols stuck to my head don't move and rolled me over and handcuffed me and i mean it went down so quick i had no chance at all to try to make a break and run and they finally stood me up when they stood me up I heard the Spirit of God again. He said, I told you, you would be caught this year. Well, that, you know, that happened. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I'm in his hands now, and he's going to show me the plan he has for me. Because I told him that summer in another prayer fishing on the river, I said, you know, whatever plan you've said you've had for me, I said, let's get on with it. I'm tired of the outlaw hunting. If i got to give it up, I'll give it up. And so step one my arrest and capture. <laughs> but now with part one out and part two on the way, my testimony that he wants me to give is in part two. And I think that's the reason he's brought it forward in two parts because he didn't want part two out yet. It's too strong. Nobody could receive it. And so when I built this, you know, foundation for the last four years, some credibility and people know I'm not some quack, you know, when I come on with the nukes in part two, they're going to understand this guy's not making this shit up. This really happened. And, I mean, it's just an unbelievable testimony for God. And I never understood why it happened in the first place, and I didn't understand why it's been so long for me to have an opportunity to, you know, tell everybody. But that's what this is. My story is just my microphone to give me the opportunity to share my testimony, and it's it's unbelievable. It's just going to shock the whole nation. It's that big. But yeah. I can't say anything about it without giving it away. 
but it's coming. I yeah, think well, I'll have it done certainly with, you know, three more months it'll be out. Yeah, well, we're going to look forward to that. These guys who uh, who, who made the rest, they must took that as quite the victory. Yeah, in fact, you know, we're walking back to the truck. They didn't even know where their buddies were that had the truck in the pasture close, and so they said, you know where these windmills are and everything? I said, yeah, and they said, um, listen to what they say. We're going to have them tell us where they're at. So they got on the radio, and those guys described this northwest fence line they were on that came off that east-west fence from the windmill, and I knew exactly where they were talking about, and he said, you know where they're talking about? And I said, yeah. He said, point at them. I took a step to the northeast and pointed with my nose, and I was handcuffed, and he looked at there on his GPS, and he said, he's pointing right at them. He said, will you take us to him? And I said, yeah. He said, stay right there. The man knows where you're at. He's bringing us to you. So I kept having to fight them wanting to stay out in the open and, you know, stay out of the brush. And I said, boys, we need to cut back. You're heading the wrong way. Well, we finally get pretty close. And he said, have them pop a shot. They popped a shot. We weren't 75 yards from them, heading right at them. And this head game board, Mike Payne, he, he just couldn't contain himself anymore. He was, you know, really overcharged with having fun. He caught me and he whipped his pistol out and fired a shot back at him right in my ear. I got mad because there wasn't no sense in him being that careless. I understood him being kind of, you know, happy and all, but there wasn't no point in him firing a shot without warning me, you know. And so I I kind of sold up and stopped and got mad at him there for a minute. But, you know, as I began to walk on, I heard God say, you're quite a, he said, you know, you're quite a trophy for these guys, Charlie. So I guess that's what it was. He just couldn't contain his, his joy, you know. He was overwhelmed. Yeah, well. <laughs> Quite the run you had. Yeah. So yeah, uh two year span. Yeah. When the hammer came down, what uh what were the charges they threw at you? I got charged with hunting without consent of landowner. That was the big one. And hunting out of season. Because it was February, season been closed about three weeks. So in penalty and fine and all, it cost me seventeen hundred to bond out and yeah, you know, I never did any jail time. The bondsman came bonding me right out, and uh, the the next morning they actually met me for breakfast and bought me breakfast, and gave me my wallet and my keys and stuff. You know, they wanted to hear me tell them some hunting stories, and I did, and um, that was kind of funny. But anyway, they uh, they ended up finding me five hundred dollars and cost the court two fifty. 18 months probation, suspension of hunting and fishing license, both. That's what hurt. I shouldn't have told them I loved to hunt. I mean, loved to fish as much as I loved to hunt. And then they wouldn't have added that to my penalty. But, you know, that hurt worse than losing out on hunting for a year and a half, not getting to fish. That You know, I love fishing more than hunting. But anyway, the, the whole scene there at that red barn in that Revere, uh, little town in Revere there in the north end of the Kennedy that's where I ate breakfast with them, and I told them about, you know, being out here at DFW Airport on my 20-year class reunion and you know, getting P.I.'d, blew a couple tires hitting the curb, got P.I.'d. When they let me out, I bonded out in the middle of the night. Well, it was about 4 or 5, and I had just enough time, I felt like, to get to my Cadillac at the north entrance, and, and I left it parked there locked up, and put on a spare and limp into Grapevine and get me another tire, and so that was my plan, but when I got north to the dead end, I couldn't get around the runways, so I said, oh, I'm just going to cross these damn runways. So that's what I did. Well, it's funny because the game were looking at each other like, where's he going with this story? 
So I jumped, I backed up with them golf cleats on and ran into that six-foot cyclone fence. Didn't have a stable at the top, and it just flexed over, and I just climbed right up it and went over. I remember now, after telling this a lot lately, I met a jet head-on immediately, and I took a knee. And he watched me, looked at me, he saw me. He called the tower and turned me in. Well, when he passed and turned around and took off, I took off. And I would run between these these runways and hit the deck spread eagle. Here came two trucks with you know spotlights and headlights coming up the runway at me. And I mean, they'd go by me and I'd break and run behind the trucks, and, you know, hit the next median. Here come the other one coming back the other way. I made it across all four major runways and all the taxi roads and climbed the fence on the other side, made it to my old uh, Cadillac, put that spare on and hobbled in on the rim to the grapevine, <laughs> bought a tire when Goodyear opened at 7 in the morning, made it on time for a breakfast appointment with my mother and my brother's uh, son. But, you know, they were, at the end of that, they were like, well, tell us a hunting story. Tell us a hunting story, Charlie. I said, all right. So I told them about that last hunt, the contest winner, day one, when I blew it on a 30-inch spread, saw a Boone and Crockett typical over 190, no question about it, two other really good deer, and, you know, I shot at the back of one's neck that I'd rattle up after waiting all day on that 30-inch spread to kill him, and I had no idea that Boone and Crockett was even that big. And so when I shot, he turned his head just as I squeezed off and I blew one ear butt plumb off the left side of his head. And I got mad that I'd missed him and the shot was so loud and I just, you know, clenched up. I just cringed and I was saying, damn, that shot was loud. Damn, I missed. And I mean, I just froze. My plan was to go ahead and shoot that buck, run out there and kill the 30-inch buck. I'd waited on all day about 350 yards from me down in that draw valley. And while I'm sitting there froze up, the wide one, the 30-inch buck, runs in on me, just right in on the oak leaves in that oak mot. And I said, i got to shoot him. Well, I raised up, and I'm just so clenched up, I'm not thinking clear. I, you know, so mad and everything. And uh, I squeezed off on his shoulder, nothing happened. I thought that was having a problem with the reloads. This guy gave me some reloads, and I thought something was wrong with the primers. It wasn't firing. I said, discharge, you know, misfire. And so I rechambered another shell real slow and did it again. He's 20 yards from me. I'm squeezing off on him. He looks like he's got two arms sticking straight out. He was 30-something inches easy. And so I realized at that point, I went, you left your safety back on. When I rechambered that shell after missing that one, blew his ear off, I put the safety back on. So I just said, you left your safety on. He pulled up behind some heavy brush and stopped 30 yards. I shot through the brush. He took off, crashed about 20 yards and was down on his knees, heaving and choking and gagging. And I went, I got him. I got the 30-inch spread buck. And so I was, you know, real happy at the moment. And then here comes this black 150 buck that I'd seen down there 500 yards all day long with the other two. And I, he danced right on through. And then here come this mule deer-looking buck, real square, tall, 15-inch back tines. And he had black velvet covered still, about three or four-inch handlebars on both back tines, way up high. He would have gone Boone and Crockett, I believe, but those handlebars would have probably kept him back out of the book. Well, I, at that point, this Jeep's coming in on me. I heard him crank after, you know, down in the 30-inch buck. Well, I've got them pouring in on me. They're getting closer and closer and closer in the rough coming up at me, and that buck's standing there looking big enough to go ahead and shoot him too, but I said, I can't shoot that deer. You know, they're coming right in on me. They're going to pinpoint me. And then here comes the one I'd known least about all day. And he was over 20 points typical. I'm not kidding you. It, nothing on his rack was less than probably eight or nine inches long at the front and back. But he had 10-inch eye guards, and he had perfect 
typical rack. I think he could have had 24 points. I couldn't count them. They were so close together. The beam was real palmated, and the, the points were so close together, they looked just like your fingers on your hands. Hold both your hands up beside each other, you know, front to back, and that's what it looked like. And he was around 20-inch spread, probably 19 inside. But he comes in, and I said, I can't shoot that deer. They're 200 yards from me, blowing wide open in on me. So the Jeep comes within 30 yards of the motor less and stops, and when he cut the motor, I could hear the fan blade turning on the motor after he cut it off. That's how close they were. And that buck moved up two or three more times, but he stopped still in view, about 35 yards from me. And all of a sudden, I went into this trance. I forgot the Jeep was parked outside the mot. And so I said, shoot that deer. My spirit was talking loud. He said, shoot the deer. And so I got a couple steps up, leaned on a live oak tree, and got steady and got on the back of his neck. And I started squeezing, and the weight came out of that trigger. It collapsed, and when it did, I caught myself, and I said, I can't shoot that deer. They're right outside the mud on me. I'm going to get my ass caught. I've got to get my shit together. So I put it back on safety and got in this cat claw and put my little camo gloves on, covered my face, and stood there till pitch dark. And they didn't crank for like 30 minutes after dark. They must have been out on foot walking around, or they must have been, you know, and what saved me probably was every time I'd go out there and check that 30-inch buck all day, I'd brush my tracks with a limb. So that kept them from being able to track me into that mot. So they were just watching that surrounding open country, hoping someone would get up and show themselves where they could see them and get after them. But I was afraid to even piss and make any noise at all. So I just crawled straight in my sleep bag. I said, I'm going to, you know, sleep and, and get up when I need to pee about three or so in the morning. I'm going to find that 30 inch spread and cape him off and get the fuck out of here. I knew Tom East was going to be bringing the helicopters, and he did. And so what happened was the next morning I was still jogging back and forth, looking everywhere. I burned my flashlight, plumbing up, looking for that deer. I could not find any sign of him, no blood, no nothing. He got up and left. I was just sick. So I let it get light where I could see good enough in daylight to make sure he wasn't there somewhere in a thick spot. I had missed him, and I didn't see him at all. And so they got the first helicopter up. When they did, it circled that oak mountain, came through a valley of dead mesquite, looked like it had been sprayed, defoliated. And I started running out across that, and I got about 200 yards out in it, needed about 300 more to get to the live oak on the other side. And that helicopter beelines me. As he's coming at me, right on the treetops, I see this one native big old heavy trunk mesquite cover navy. Man, I'm taking full-length strides, you know, gun, bow, backpack, and everything, just running wide open. And as I'm getting closer and closer, the helicopter's getting closer and closer to me. Right at the last second, I dove in, turned my back, bounced off that big tree full of ivy, shoved myself right back up against it, and over the top of the tree. I jumped up, took off running again. I didn't stop running for four miles. And, I mean, they put up five to seven helicopters, and they were burning the brush down. And about dark that night, I killed a 14.160-something-inch buck. And, uh, you know, that made it feel a little better. But I was so mad, so disheartened for blowing it so bad. That was the best opportunity I've ever had in all the years of my outlaw hunting. And I butchered it, just blew it. And it just shouldn't have happened that way. You know, if I would have killed those deer, any of them, I'd have been back in Fort Worth that next day, drunk, celebrating. But I told the game ones that story. And then I said, when I got back to Fort Worth, I, it was an 11-day hunt. But I, I killed a 189 days later, and that was a good one. That won the contest I was in that year. But when I told my buddy, Big L, what had happened, he said, 
you should have shot that deer and everybody else that came running into the mott and the game wardens died laughing. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, they understood. Yeah, that's quite and, the story, and I, man. So, yeah, Big L was right. <laughs> the uh, these ranches, they ever try to get a hold of you? They ever try to seek restitution for for these deer? No. No, they they didn't they didn't ever try to file any kind of charges of that. See, back then we didn't have restitution. When I turned in those heads and admitted guilt on them, there was no restitution laws. They fell in place years later. Mm. You know, been a different story now. You know, certainly if they would have had me with a big deer when they caught me, I would have had to pay restitution. And it would have probably been him. The buck I missed the evening before in a real strong wind by not holding on his hip, I held about the last rib instead at 300 yards, and I missed this 180-something buck. He was pushing 190 with you know stickers and forks everywhere up at the top. Real long, foot-long, eye guards, wiggly, dick, dastardly-looking, rack, black horns. If I was in an area called the Moto Negra when I got caught. Well, that means black mott. And the trees there, the bark is the color of charcoal. And that's how those deer rub and have black horns in that area. It's unlike any place in the whole ranch. You don't see that color of bark anywhere else in the whole Kennedy Ranch. That's why they named it Moto Negra. Well, you know, that that was where they caught me. And, you know, after missing that deer, staying in that area that third day, looking for him again. And that group of bucks, he was with nine other bucks. I looked for them bucks all day that day, made a big three-and-a-half, four-mile circle. That's one of the reasons it took the game where it was still dark to come back to where I was. But what was funny, there was a bunch of outlaw drunks, fishermen over there listening to the scanner, and they were trying to figure out who it was the game worms were chasing. You know, all day long when they got on the tracks, they were talking, you know, we're over here now, we're over there now, He's 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 covered all this ground. Well, there was a flooded area right there near where they caught me. But what happened was I walked right up to it, and I had stashed my backpack in some real heavy brush and walked those three or four miles that third day looking for that deer. So I was light, light on my feet. Well, I walked right up to that water, and it was about 30 yards across it, and it's about 50 yards long. And my pack was up in some brush on the other side of it. So what I did when I stopped at that water, I just leaned back, in a couple of steps that I'd already made and took off. And I ran on the clump grass in that water, about 18 inch deep water and hardly stirred the murk on it, you know, landing my ball of my foot on dead center of all them clump grasses and just ran across that water, got up in just, you know, right up the heavy brush Henry, right into that live oak, went to the heavy thicket and found my backpack and moved from there about another eight or 900 yards before they've tracked to me and caught me. But the suckers had came to that water hole. They saw where I was. And, and the tracks just ended. And this one old man called Papa Smurf, this midget, his name was Charlie, too. He was beating his head against the wall trying to figure out who the hell they were chasing. And it hadn't hit him yet, but one of them game ones came on the scanner when they stalled out at the end of my tracks on that water hole. And he said, this guy's a professional. He comes right up to this water and the tracks just end. And it hit him. He'd seen me three nights before in this Sam's Place bar there at Lola Beach. And he stood up in the middle of the room and he said, that's Charlie Beatty thereafter over there. <laughs> and sure enough, that's who it was. And about, you know, another 30 minutes later, they had me. I, I know it was two more hours before they got to me because they'd been right underneath me for a couple of hours. But 
Yeah, he figured out he remembered seeing me in town because, you know, I didn't live down there then. I would just show up and make my hunch. But, you know, yeah, it it was something else the way it ended. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's quite a story at the courthouse, you know. I bet. There's, there's quite a lot, you know, quite a bit went on there at the courthouse. They acted like they caught some space alien or, or Bigfoot. I mean, when they got me out of that truck, the ranch securities wanted to haul me into town. And when he let me out of the truck, game wardens were taking a knee halfway to the courthouse in the parking lot, photographing me being escorted into the courthouse. It was ridiculous how big of an event they acted like it was. You know, of course, being after me 22 years, I guess it meant that much to them. Yeah, I bet it didn't. You know. Crazy anyway. stuff, man. We're going to look forward to part two coming out. It's coming out soon. Uh, I'd like to get you back on. Maybe uh, once we get that, once you get that book out, it'd be great to touch base and talk about uh, part two of your book. Yeah, no doubt. So no where doubt. can uh, make... where can guys uh, buy your book? On well, my website's www.princeofpoachers.com, and uh, you know I've got Christmas three packs for gifts yeah. available now, and you know singles. You know I do some autograph copies too for a little extra to cover my time, but. I'm just Charlie Beatty. There's nothing special about me. I just love to hunt like everybody else. And we can uh, too much. <laughs> you can pick it up on Amazon as well, I think, through Kindle, for those who can. Right. Who can't yeah, wait. Yeah, that just went into place last night. Perfect. And, uh, you know, don't forget, uh, while they're waiting on part two, my buddy Pat Lane's book, www.beforethestoriesarelost.com, and I guarantee you it's a real education about down there, and he did a lot of the hunting I did. He's in some of my hunts. I'm in some of his. He was the road hunting king. He was trained by the masters. He knew all the old-timers of generation prior that were never caught and just gave the game more than fits and stuff. And, man, he's got some stories I don't have. <laughs> yeah. I, uh... Anybody that like I'll have to pick that if you one like up. My book, you'll, yeah, if you like my book, you'll like this too, you know. It's quite an account of Deep South Texas. Yeah, and I'll have links to uh, to your webpage, and I'll put a link up to that one too where, where guys can check out what you got going on and, and pick up some of these books. Yeah. yeah but but uh, and, uh, we got uh, two books here we're going to give away. So uh, cool. I think uh, what was the score of the biggest buck you ever took? I brought a couple of 180s out of there. 180? Okay, that's you know, it. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, one, so, 180. So the first two people who write in and uh, they they tell me the they tell me the name of the biggest buck you uh, you killed. We're gonna give them. We're gonna send them one of your books and uh, we're gonna add a little bit of swag in there too. So uh, be a nice Christmas Great. presents for some people. Oh yeah. Okay, CB. Thanks again, eh, for uh, for yeah. taking some time. I uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, and, I should. Uh, I, sh- I should have told you that earlier. Most people that know me personally, that's what they call me, CB. That's, I'm just CB. You know, it's in a lot of my stories that way. Awesome. <laughs> okay, man. Well, uh, you stay in touch. Okay. Thanks for having me.